This is Alan Johnson, pastor of Old Peachtree Presbyterian Church in Duluth, Georgia. The Bible is God's Word. It describes itself as living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Therefore, any encounter with the Bible is a momentous thing because it never leaves us unchanged. My prayer for you as you hear this message is that the Holy Spirit will use it in your life to inform your mind, to feed your soul, and to help you grow in your faith in Christ. Let's take your Bibles and turn with me this evening to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. It says in the bulletin, we'll be looking at verses 7 through 18. We'll also be looking at verse 6, since it kind of, Paul sort of, as we saw last time, makes a transition into uh, what he's talking about in our passage tonight. So let's back up. We'll actually start our reading in verse 4, 2 Corinthians 3, 4. Hear the word of God. Paul says, such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us competent to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Now, if the ministry of death, carved in letters on stone, came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, Will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold, not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the old, when they read the old covenant, that same veil remains unlifted, because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your word tonight, for its truth, for its power. Uh, Father, for its power to change our lives, its power to draw us close to you, its power to reveal you to us. And Lord, we pray that it would do all of that and more as we think about it tonight. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. The book of Hebrews is an invaluable book in the... New Testament, because it serves the purpose of demonstrating the relationship between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Now, you may think, well, that should be obvious. Well, it's not. And many uh, differences among Christians arise because of different understandings of how the two relate to each other. What changes and what does not change as we move from the Old Testament into the New But one thing that that Hebrews makes clear, uh, beyond any controversy at all, is that what we have in Christ 
is superior to what God's people had before Christ. What we have in the new covenant, which is the covenant of grace, now that Christ has come and has lived and died and been raised and has given the church his Holy Spirit, is superior. All of that is superior to what God's people had under the old covenant. Now, I know the King James Version says the epistle of Paul to the Hebrews. Uh, I would beg to differ with that title, which is not inspired, uh, because I'm not convinced that Paul is the author of Hebrews. Uh, I see too many differences in style, in in theme, uh, and so forth. Uh, However, uh, I think if Paul were to have written Hebrews or were to write a book like Hebrews, it would be an expanded form of what we have here in our passage tonight. Because Paul takes up here that same theme, the relationship of the Old Covenant to the New Covenant and the superiority of the New Covenant. Now, you may recall that Paul, as he's writing to the church in Corinth, uh, is having to contend with those who oppose him there and he has to do so in a way where on the one hand he does defend his rightful apostolic authority on the other hand he has to do it in a way where he doesn't appear to be protesting too much where he doesn't have to appear defensive protective of his own turf so to speak and he as we saw last time commends the corinthians themselves as his, uh, his, his letter of recommendation, his epistle commendatory, uh, that they themselves uh, authenticate him as an apostle because of God's work through him, because of the new life that they have in Christ. Now, as he's mentioned in the passage we looked at last time, uh, the, he mentions the whole question of uh, sufficiency. Uh, who is sufficient to be God's instrument of life or death. To preach Christ recognizing that that is the divide and how people respond to Christ will determine their eternal destiny. Responding to Christ in repentance and faith leading to eternal life. Responding to Christ with rejection, whether hostile rejection or a benign rejection leading to eternal condemnation. In hell, And Paul says, who is sufficient to have that kind of burden, that kind of weight on his shoulders to determine, at least indirectly, people's eternal destiny? But then he goes on at the end of the passage we looked at last time, verse 5, not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us. Our sufficiency is from God, who has made us competent, and it's the same word, made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Now we said last time that this whole section uh, that we're looking at here is something of a digression, a rabbit trail with Paul. Uh, And we're very thankful for his his digressions because they contain uh, some of his richest theological and pastoral passages. And this is certainly such a one. Well, as Paul goes on in these verses, beginning in verse 6 and going through verse 18, he describes in the first place here a new ministry 
And then in the second place, a, because of that new ministry, a new relationship that we as God's people have with the Lord. So in the first place, in verses 6 through 11, he describes a new ministry. Uh, obviously, if there's new, there was something old, a contrast. And what I want to do is just look at these verses in terms of the contrasts that Paul uh, describes here. First of all, as we look at the contrast between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, the old ministry uh, or administration or administration, which is probably a good term, uh, he's not talking about here necessarily about individual ministers, he's talking here about an arrangement. He's talking here about an administration of the covenant of grace under the old terms in the old covenant and now in the new terms uh, in the new covenant. And he spells out that contrast in some detail. First of all, there's a contrast of the letter versus the spirit. Look at what he says in verse 6. He's made us competent to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the spirit. Well, what does that mean? What, what letter is he referring to here? Well, Paul is looking back to the, the, the giving of the law. To the, to the law given by God at Mount Sinai uh, in Exodus chapter 20 and the chapters that follow. And the letter here is the law, the Ten Commandments, the Ten Words, the Decalogue, Deca, Ten, Logos, Word, the Ten Words or Commandments, uh, written by the, the hand of God on the stone that was the standard, the the. Uh, transcript of God's own character and the standard by which his people were to be measured, uh, the standard by which they were to live. Now, that was something external to the people themselves. It was, after all, on, uh, on, on the stone that uh, God wrote this law, uh, stones which later Moses broke, but God in his forbearance uh, gave him a, a copy of, uh, gave him another set. Uh, Moses, in his anger at the people, threw them down and, and broke them. Uh, but the letter versus the Spirit is the first contrast. The Spirit, on the other hand, being obviously the work of the Spirit of God within us. Uh, and in other places in Scripture, indicating the idea that God has written his law on our hearts. In the New Covenant. In the Old Covenant, the law is letters on stone. In the New Covenant, God has put his law on our hearts. Turn back to uh, one of the pivotal passages in all of Scripture. If you're not familiar with it, you need to be. Uh, And it's Jeremiah chapter 31. It is uh, buried in the middle of, by word count, the longest book in the Old Testament, uh, the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 31, magnificent prophecy in the midst of the people's rebellion, their refusal to believe, their following false gods, their looking to political alliances, uh, and their stifling the uh, prophetic voice of Jeremiah. Uh, we find in Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 31, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. Now that was the the covenant of the letters written on stone. 
Verse 33, but this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Well, what is God saying there? He's saying they've broken my covenant, but the day is coming when I will write my law on their hearts. When it will not be an external compulsion of righteousness, but an internal principle of righteousness from within. Very similar to Ezekiel's metaphor of taking away the heart of stone and giving them a heart of flesh, a living heart that's responsive to God, that loves God. So that's the first contrast in terms of this new ministry or a new administration of the covenant of grace. is going from the letter to the Holy Spirit who puts the law on our hearts, an internal principle of righteousness. Uh, a second contrast that he mentions here in terms of the administration of the covenant of grace is, is with the letter to the Spirit, death versus life. The covenant of death versus the covenant of life. Look at verses 6 and 7. For the letter kills... But the Spirit gives life. Now, if the ministry of death, which is a rather astonishing way to think of uh, the Old Covenant, isn't it? The ministry of death, carved in letters on stone, came with such glory the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, uh, which was being brought to an end. Will not the ministry of the Spirit, that is the ministry of life, have even more glory? Again, verse 6, the letter kills, the Spirit gives life. Now, we need to be careful here. Moses is by no means saying that, or Paul is by no means saying that Moses and the law and the old covenant is bad, or that it's evil, or that it was somehow wrong. Obviously not. Uh, in fact, look, look with me back over in Romans chapter 7, where Paul kind of illustrates what he's talking about here. He's not saying it's bad. He's not saying it's wrong. He does say that its end is death. Why? Because what it requires, it cannot provide. The law requires righteousness. The law is a standard. The law sets a very high standard. It raises the bar to the character of God's, to the level of God's own character. And no one measures up. And therefore, it brings death. The wages of sin is death. And the law itself makes no provision for any righteousness whatsoever. It merely exposes our lack of righteousness. Uh, so look at Romans 7, verses 7 and following. <clears throat> Paul is talking about the role of the law in this way. And he says, What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had said, You shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. Apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive, and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it, killed me. So the law's bad, right? No. Verse 12, so the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. 
Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. The problem is not the law. The problem is me. The problem is you. We're sinners. And it's not just that the law exposes sin. The law provokes sin. And we sin, and we violate the commandment, and we die. Because the wages of that transgression is death. That's what Paul's saying. That's what he's saying here uh, about that whole administration. The law had the capacity to set a standard of righteousness, but not to provide the righteousness that we need. The ministry of the new covenant, by contrast, is a ministry that provides life. The Spirit gives life. Uh, the Old Covenant was a ministry of death, and Paul never gets around to saying the New is a ministry of life, but it is. The New Covenant, God provides what we could not provide for ourselves, the righteousness of Christ, the righteousness, perfect righteousness, perfect obedience to the law provided for us, given to us, received by faith. So that's another contrast as you move from the Old Testament where the law is good, the law is spiritual, the law is God-given, the law is God's own character. But in the end, it cannot give what it requires. Another contrast, fading glory versus a greater glory. Look at 7 and 8. Again, uh, Paul says, If this ministry of death came with such glory, the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end. Uh, Will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it, in glory, indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. The old covenant was a glorious thing. Uh, there was a glory to it. There was the presence of God at Sinai, the thunder, the sound of trumpets, and Moses' own face was radiant from his being in the presence of God. It was a glorious thing. God's revelation of himself. God's constituting his people uh, here on the earth and with his law, with that form of government that he gave to them at Sinai. And yet, the new covenant has a greater glory. A glory so much greater, in fact, that Paul could say that it was as if the old covenant had no glory at all. It's as if uh, the contrast is that of uh, being out on the night with a full moon the radiant and beautiful light of the moon. And the sun comes up, and it so outshines the glory of the moon that the moon disappears, as if the glory of the moon is gone. Now, the moon has its glory, and it's a reflective glory, by the way. Uh, But the glory of the sun uh, completely removes it from the scene. And so it is here, the fading glory, uh, the passing glory of the old covenant. And it was fading, as Moses Radiant faces fading uh, symbolized um, being replaced by a greater glory. Uh, Again, as in life and death, condemnation versus righteousness. Look at verses 9 and 10. Um, He speaks in verse 9, If there was a glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Well, he describes again here the effect of the law. The ultimate outcome of the law is to condemn. It exposes. It, it 
demonstrates our sin, whereas the new covenant is a covenant of righteousness. It provides righteousness. It doesn't merely describe it. It doesn't merely portray it, but it actually provides it through the finished work of Christ. And then the last thing he mentions by way of this contrast in this new ministry, the new ministry of the covenant of grace, is uh, its passing nature, its provisional nature versus the permanence of the new covenant. Look at verse 11. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, how much more will what is permanent have glory? Again, um, the old covenant was a provisional administration. What we have in Christ is now the permanent and final installment. Uh, more glory to come with Christ's return, but not a fundamental change. Uh, we have righteousness now in Christ, and that will last forever. Now, it's worth noting in the midst of this that the saints of the Old Testament were not saved by law-keeping. They were saved by the same provisions that we have in the New Covenant. What's the difference? The difference is that whereas they looked forward to the Messiah's coming, he has already come now from our point of view. We look back toward the Messiah's coming. He has lived. He has died. He has been raised. He has given us his spirit. And we have that individual relationship with God, individual filling with the Spirit that they did not have in the Old Covenant, the Old Testament. Not the Spirit wasn't there, wasn't active, but there's a very new relationship. And that brings us then to the second part of Paul's passage here. And that is this new relationship that we have in Christ. One enjoyed by the saints of the Old Testament, I might add, but they didn't see the fullness of it and understand it in the kind of detail that we do now. So this new ministry with the contrast that Paul describes in these various ways. But then verses 12 through 18, the new relationship that we have as a result. Now, again, he describes it in terms of a contrast, talking about, first of all, about Moses and about Moses' uh, own relationship with God and relationship with his fellow Israelites. Uh, Look at verse 12. Since we have such a hope, we, he says, are very bold. I almost wonder if he didn't break off in mid-sentence and go in a different direction because it's almost as if he's recapping. Since we have what we have in the New Covenant, we are bold. Uh, Even though this is a tremendous uh, responsibility, God is sufficient and we are bold because of what we have in the New Covenant. We're bold not like Moses. That's, I think, the turning point, the, the secondary rabbit trail in a sense. Not like Moses who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. Again, the provisional nature. Uh, veiled faces. You have Moses' veiled face. Moses would cover his face. And in fact, in Exodus 34, it describes this. Uh, his face, when he met with the Lord, Exodus 34, verse 29. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand as he came down from the mountain, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he'd been talking with God. Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses, and behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. But Moses called to them, and Aaron and all the leaders of the congregation returned to him, and Moses talked with them. Afterward, all the people of Israel came near, and he commanded them all that the Lord had spoken with him in Mount Sinai. And when Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil over his face. Whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would remove the veil until he came out. 
And when he came out and told the people of Israel what he was commanded, the people of Israel would see the face of Moses, and the skin of Moses' face was shining. And Moses would put the veil over his face again until he went in to speak with him. Not only was Moses' face veiled because the people were afraid of him and afraid of God's glory there in his face, uh, but their faces, unfortunately, were veiled too. Look at what he goes on to say in verse 14. Their minds were hardened. For to this day, then, yes, but also up to the present time, Paul's own day, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted. Because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. So Moses' face, the glory of the Lord, is veiled from them. And he's speaking here of the burden of his heart, which is his unbelieving kinsman. But their faces are veiled so that they can't see the glory of the Lord. Even if Moses uncovered his face, their faces are veiled. They're still blind. They're like the people Paul described in 1 Corinthians 1, uh, natural people, uh, and are unable to understand the truths of the Spirit of God, foolishness to them because of their spiritual blindness. And that, that, that's what Paul's referring to here with this veil. But how different in Christ, the relationship we have with Christ. Look at verse 14. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now, I think Paul is speaking sequentially, uh, Although he could also be speaking theologically, when one turns to the Lord, it is because the veil is removed. Theologically, that would be the order. Uh, However, in terms of personal experience, when a person does turn to Christ, it's as if then the veil is removed and they can understand these things. They turn to Christ so the veil is removed uh, would also be true in terms of personal experience. The point is, however, now... In Christ, they, they see, they understand. Now, verse 17, now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Um, Paul is, uh, Paul's not confused in his Trinitarian doctrine here. He's not saying that Jesus is the Holy Spirit. What he's saying goes back to what he said earlier when he was talking about the Spirit. Not a letter of the letter, verse uh, 6, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Paul is saying Jesus is connected with the work of the Spirit. He's working through the Spirit. Jesus said, I will send you another comforter. The Spirit works in Jesus' stead. Uh, the, The Spirit is, if we were to put it this way, Jesus with us. He's not Jesus, but he is Jesus' emissary, his representative. Now that Jesus is no longer with us in the flesh, his Holy Spirit dwells within us. Continues to teach, to convict, to lead us in all of these things. But he's saying that Jesus is identified with the new covenant. Jesus is identified with the life-giving spirit, uh, as he puts it here. And as a result, where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And then verse 18. Unlike the Jews, who Moses' face is veiled, their faces are, are figuratively veiled. Their hearts are veiled. Their minds are covered, blind. Uh, we all, Paul says, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. Uh, some translations, uh, I think the NIV particularly, says uh, reflecting the glory of the Lord. But I believe it should certainly in context be beholding 
because we are gazing on the Lord. Yes, Moses reflected the glory of the Lord, but the point here is that we are looking at Christ. The veil is removed and we gaze at him and it's his glory. And so as we look at him, are becoming like him. In the Old Testament, the prophets would, would, would challenge the people, uh, pursuing idols, empty idols. Uh, and he, they basically, the idea was pursuing idols, pursuing what is empty, they became empty. We become what we pursue. We become like what we pursue, what we look at. And so it is here, the transformation into Christ's likeness. Uh, as, as John puts it in, in 1 John 3, we, when he comes, we don't know what we will be like, but we know we will be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Uh, Dr. Kelly, in his book on 2 Corinthians, uh, my theology professor says, This is nothing less than an early down payment on resurrection glory. Uh, there will be a glory in the resurrection, but this is a taste of that, our becoming more like Christ. Not perfectly until we do look at him, uh, but certainly as we walk with him in this life. This comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. And so a new relationship, a new openness. Remember earlier, we read in Exodus 34 that Moses' face was, uh, face was veiled until he went into the presence of the Lord and he would lift the veil and gaze on the glory of the Lord. What do you notice here? That this is this is individualized to every believer. Every believer has what Moses has now. That we are able, with unveiled face, to gaze on the glory of the Lord in the face of Christ Jesus. Particularly, I might add, as we find him revealed in Scripture. And so, you and I effectively are in Moses' place. We have what he had. Every one of us now. Not just Moses, not just one man. But all of us who are in Christ. And so, Paul makes the case, uh, as the book of Hebrews does, that what we have now though in some ways simpler, is far more profound and far more glorious and certainly more permanent than what our uh, ancestors in the faith enjoyed and certainly uh, what the unbelieving Israelites uh, had as well. And so we give thanks to the Lord for that. Well, Paul goes on then to talk more about the ministry, more about the implications of who we are as New Covenant believers in the passages to come. And Lord willing, we will look at that next time. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the light that we have, for the glory of the new covenant under which we live. Father, for all we enjoy, we look forward to what is yet to come and the fullness of the new covenant, the the ushering in of the, uh, the full glory of the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray that that day would come soon. Be with us, Lord, as we go out from here. We thank you, Father, that we are yours, and we pray that we would uh, gaze on the beauty of the Lord and that in, in looking at you, Father, we would be transformed into the likeness of our Lord Jesus. And we pray in his name. Amen.